we are in a series going through the Bible. Here's what I'm doing every week. I'm taking one book of the Bible and I, I'm, I'm preaching that single book and trying to give you an overview so that you can get involved in that book um, all by yourself, that you, you will have the tools. There's all kinds of resources out at the Connection Center. I'll get to them in just a moment. Um, but Ezekiel is about the glory of the Lord, okay? It's a complicated book. My guess is if I asked how many of you, you know, is Ezekiel your favorite book? Almost no one's going to raise their hand. Ezekiel is your favorite book because it's confusing. In fact, if I said, what's in Ezekiel, most of you would not know unless I said, you know, it's the book with the Valley of Dry Bones, the crazy vision of the, the wheels and the cherubim. You, you kind of know some of those things, but, but it's just not favorite book. And there's a reason for that. An old commentator, Charles Feinberg, he says this, Ezekiel is the great mystic among the inspired writers. Because of the difficulty in interpreting his figurative and visionary prophecies, he's the most neglected of all the prophets. And I have to say, I'm, I'm part of that crew that has neglected the prophets. I've done, um, the, my chart on Ezekiel has, has been around for a while. I've revised it a little bit this past week, but, but <clears throat> I've done kind of the bare necessity to kind of get my mind around Ezekiel. But there's so many complicated decisions that you have to make to really understand this book that it's just so difficult most people avoid it. To, to give you a picture of this, another commentator, Dan Block, he says this. The concentration of so many bizarre features in one individual is without precedent. His muteness, lying bound and naked, digging holes in the walls of houses, emotional paralysis in the face of his wife's death, spiritual travels, images of strange creatures, of eyes, of creeping things, hearing voices in the sounds of waters, withdrawal symptoms, fascination with feces and blood, wild literary imagination, vociferous imagery, unreal if not surreal understanding of Israel's past, and the list goes on. It's a wild book. I'm going to kind of give you the introduction of this. By the way, hold on. When I finished first hour, I walked down, I looked at my watch. I had 41 minutes of exercise um, on my watch. So it's the, I'm going to be going fast. Um, there's a lot here. Um, but I'm going to start by giving you the big message. A lot of confusion, a lot of images, wild things. Here's the, here's the, at the end of the day, here's what it says. The Lord himself will finish his promised plan. He, he, he was using people in the, in the past. He was using the Jews. He wants to use us. But we keep disqualifying ourselves. <laughs> we keep messing up. But he's going to guarantee that everything that he said he was going to do, he's going to accomplish it because he will accomplish it. Not because we're so great. Not because we're worthy. The Lord himself will accomplish his promised plan. He's the one who will finish it, bring it to completion, and he does that with the Jews um, in a number of different ways, not the least of which is they are the conduit through whom Jesus, our Savior, the King who's going to rule, is going to come at the end of the age. And, and, and they were unworthy of it. They kept messing it up, but he is going to bring it to completion. Um, I'm going to back up a little bit here and kind of set the stage for, for what God has been doing um, John Hilber uh, wrote a commentary on Ezekiel. Um, I, he was at Dallas Seminary when I was there. He was a doctrinal student when I was a master's student. And, and he's got a great introduction to, um, to this book. And I have it for you out at the Connection Center. But here's what he says at one point. God's design from the beginning of creation was to bless his world. 
But his creatures rebelled. So beginning with Abraham, God called to himself a people through whom he might channel his blessing. He wanted to bless everybody they rebelled, so he narrowed it down. I'm going to bring the blessing to the whole world through the children of Abraham. Under Moses, God shaped the descendants of Abraham into a nation in order for them to be a missionary kingdom to the world. He's going to use them to take this message to the world. But they failed their calling in the land that God had given them. They fought amongst themselves, split in civil war, overturned social justice with violence, and abandoned the God who called them. Like Adam and Eve, who were expelled from the garden, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah were sent into exile. Such were the final consequences of breaking the terms of the covenant between God and his people. But by God's grace, that is not the final word. And Ezekiel proclaims both the message of doom, first half of his book, as well as the vision of restoration. But that restoration is not because they earn it. It's because God himself will bring to completion his promised plan. Now, backing up to talk about the prophets. Um, The the charge of the prophets is threefold throughout all of the 17 prophets that we're going to go through. All of them are kind of hammering on these three points. Idolatry. You've forsaken the one and only true God, your Redeemer. They're hammered for idolatry. Ritualism. Your worship is empty. You're just going through the motions. Um, Even if you do have the right God, it's not real for you. You're just doing the bare minimum to get by. And social injustice, which is the outgrowth of all this. If you're worshiping an idol and you're just going through the motions, then you're not going to live your life with any impact that causes you to love other people and take care of widows and orphans and aliens. Um, These are the three charges. Particularly, Ezekiel focuses on idolatry. Al Ross says this, Ezekiel has more to say about idolatry than any other prophet. He's going to hammer idolatry again and again and again. Dr. Ross says this, Ezekiel addresses idolatry from three perspectives. The causes of the idolatry, that was the prophets, the priests, and the elders, the leaders. The reason people were in idolatry is because their leaders weren't continually pointing them Back to God, back to Jesus, using the word of God. They were uh, telling people, hey, do whatever you need to do to be happy. Fit in with the world. Worship their idols. Buy into that worldview. The other thing is the expression of idolatry in corrupt worship. And finally, that corrupt worship always leads to corrupt living. There's no way around it. When the leaders fail you and aren't preaching God's word that points you back to Jesus and making him supreme in your life, Then your worship becomes empty, shallow, and you start following other gods. And then the leaders say, oh, that's okay. And when that becomes okay, then your lifestyle begins to degenerate. Um, This is one of the verses that's um, talking about this. Then, in the nations where they have been carried captive, this is Israel, those who escape will remember me, how I have been grieved by their adulterous hearts, idolatry, which have turned away from me, false worship, and by their eyes, which have lusted after other idols. They will loathe themselves for the evil they have done and for all their detestable practices. This word for evil in Hebrew, it's the word ra'ah. It sounds really bad. Ra'ah. The Old Testament word ra'ah means social violence. It's corruption at every level of society when everyone is living to satisfy their basic instincts and taking advantage of other people to do it, living life with gusto without regard for God, who would tell you to love other people. It's corruption at every level of society, politically, socially, entertainment within the church, corruption at every level of society. And everyone affirming, satisfy your basic instincts. 
And take advantage of other people if you have to. Live life with gusto. Sound familiar? The message of Ezekiel is very relevant for us today. So hold on. Here we go. We're going to talk about Ezekiel. It is a crazy book. Um, The book has all kinds of visions. Uh, There's a vision of God on a mobile chariot throne. Okay? That's one we're probably familiar with. There's this vision I'm going to show you of abomination in the temple. Um, There's all these cherubim. And and when you think about cherubim, if you're thinking um, fat babies with diapers playing harps, you're missing the point. Cherubim are frightening. They're terrifying. Um, When they're moving, it sounds like an army. Um, There there are, um, there's the Valley of Dry Bones where all these bones are out there and and they put skin on them and God breathes life back into them. These these are wild visions. Um, There's a vision of the expanded temple. I'm going to talk about that in just a little bit. All of these visions are bizarre. What what you do with these bizarre visions, um, I'm not sure how to land them all. I know they all have meaning, and I know what the meaning is, but the details of how specific they are, that's a little different. Ezekiel has some weird object lessons throughout the book. Um, He lies on his one side for a year and then lies on the other side for a year. Um, He shaves his head. He cooks food over dung. Just He's very creative in presenting this message that, that God is going to judge you. Um, there, there's, he, he refuses to mourn for his wife because God tells him to. Um, very creative in presenting this message. Bizarre book, creative book, wild visions and imaginations. Here's the saving grace. It's very chronological. More than any other book in the Bible, Ezekiel says, on the fifth day of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and, and he says it's on the 30th day of the fir- fourth month, and he tells you exactly when it's going to happen. So we can put it together. It is a chronological flow, very much unlike Jeremiah. If you remember, Jeremiah is not chronological. Ezekiel is chronological, and we can figure out the very dates. We know that it happened on September 17th. It was a Wednesday when this guy came in and told them, hey, Jerusalem has been sacked. We know the dates when all of this stuff happened. So it's wild. But it's chronological, it's order. We can make some sense of it. In order to try to make sense of it, I've given you lots of resources out there at the Connection Center. In addition to my chart, which I've revised a little bit, um, there's an article out there by John Hilber that is an, an excellent introduction to the book. It just kind of gives you the overview, the flow of the book, how it's arranged, and what he's trying to do. Um, I've got an article out there that I wrote on the New Covenant in which I kind of highlight, I wish I had more time for this, that in Genesis chapter 1, God says 10 things. There's 10 things that God says that kind of gets his program going. It's going to be like this. God says 10 things. When he's working with the Israelites, he gives them 10 commandments. They blow it. They fail in all of the 10 commandments. And so there's this new covenant thing. And interestingly, there's 10 provisions in the new covenant. God's going to accomplish his stuff. He started it with 10 statements. He gave him 10 commandments. Now there's 10 provisions in the new covenant. You can see it all out there. There's another article on this new covenant because the new covenant is how God is going to fulfill it himself. It's how God accomplishes the plan that he had because nobody else would cooperate with him. So he breathes into them and makes them a new people. He gives them their spirit and he changes them eternally, internally. (laughs) There's more. Okay. Um, There's a whole article out there on modern Israel. And um, at the end of, at the end of Ezekiel, um, Israel is regathered back into the land. And the question is, what is, when is that regathering? 
Did that regathering take place in 536? Did that regathering take place in um, Jesus' time? Did that regathering take place in 1948? And I would say, yeah, all of those, and maybe again in the future, and again and again, until finally there's a culmination. And so what do we do with modern Israel? Great article on that. There are two articles on the temple. There is, um, at the end of the book, a plan for this new temple where God's presence will dwell. The question is, is that a literal temple or not? Let me just give you, for everybody who's kind of looking for the new temple, and they're saying, you know, people are digging underground in the Dome of the Rock, and they're trying to find the Holy of Holies and all that kind of stuff. Read Ezekiel. The temple grounds that they're talking about are eight miles by six miles. It's huge. It's not happening underground under the temple, the temple dome. This is something God's going to do in the future if this is literal, If it's not literal, it's because Jesus is the temple. Jesus said, tear down this temple, I'll raise it in three days. He was talking about himself. He's the temple. Maybe that's the fulfillment. I don't know. Honestly, at the end of all this, I don't know. There's also an article out there about this end times battle with Gog of Magog. Um, Trying to identify who all of these countries are is pointless. Um, Here's what I would just tell you real quickly. Gog is one person early in the Bible. He's another person in Revelation, Gog's, you can't put countries in there or people in there. Gog is the enemies of God. That's who gets defeated, okay? So relax. You're not going to figure it all out. Um, I, I spent 40 years avoiding the book, and this past week I had to try to figure some things out. You can't figure it out. But here's what you do know. God is going to accomplish his promised plan for his own glory. Ezekiel is a exilic prophet. We're going to get one more exilic prophet next week in Daniel. Then we're going to go back and get a lot of pre-exilic prophets, the guys who prophesied before the Assyrians took um, the the northern kingdom of Israel and wiped them out. And before the Babylonians, which is what Ezekiel is going to talk about, wiped out the, the southern kingdom of Judah and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. All those are pre-exilic prophets. Ezekiel is an exilic prophet. He prophesies during the exile, as does Daniel. There's going to be three more prophets who are going to prophesy when they come back to the land. We call them post-exilic prophets. I'm going to give you some summaries, then we're going to look at some details, okay? Bruce Wilkinson says this. Ezekiel prophesies among the Jewish exiles in Babylon during the last days of Judah's decline and downfall. His ministry is in some ways similar to that of his older contemporary, Jeremiah. But while Jeremiah delivers a chilling message of destruction of Jerusalem, Ezekiel brings the warming message of reconstruction in Babylon. Back in Jerusalem, Jeremiah preaches, spends his whole time there, judgment, judgment, judgment. Ezekiel is away, and he's going to preach judgment, but then when the judgment comes, he's going to preach, but there's going to be a restoration. Jeremiah is a man of tears, Ezekiel a man of visions. And those visions stretch from horror to hope, from condemnation under, uh, upon Judah's faithless leaders and godless foes to consolation regarding Judah's future. Through it all, mankind will see the glory of Israel's sovereign Lord, and they will know that I am the Lord. This is about God's glory, not about him u- using us. So here's kind of what we're doing with all these books. Who wrote it? When was it written? Where were they? And why is this book written? So let's jump into this. Who composed Ezekiel? Ezekiel was born into a priestly family and as a young man was part of the second wave of the Babylonian deportation in 597. I'm going to put this all together for you in a minute. 
Ezekiel's prophetic call came five years after the deportation while he was among the exiles. So he's deported five years later. God says, I need you to be my prophet. His messages span 20 years of his lifetime from 593 to 571. And God repeatedly addresses Ezekiel as son of man, which stresses his human frailty in contrast to the sovereign sufficiency of, of God. Over and over and over again, when God speaks to Ezekiel, he says, son of man, say this and tell them the sovereign Lord says this. God is always sovereign Lord 168 times in Ezekiel. He's the sovereign Lord. Ezekiel is son of man. The best I can come up with is it's boy. Boy, need you to tell him this. That's what I think is going on here. Son of man, tell him the sovereign Lord says this. Boy, I got something for you to do. Go tell these people this. Um, Ezekiel lived among the exiles on the Kiber Canal, a primary irrigation canal, breaching off the Euphrates River and running through the city of Babylon. That means nothing to you until you see this picture. This is ancient Babylon. We know it from archaeology. It's been well-preserved, well-documented that this is what ancient Babylon would have looked like. Um, The Euphrates River ran right through the center of the town. And there were these canals that moved off into, uh, into the town to water it and provide water uh, f- for the rest of the city. Um, the city's massive. Um, right in the middle, um, you see that blue thing that, that's there in the middle? Um, that is a gate. We'll talk about it next week more under Daniel. That is a gate that's been excavated and reconstructed with the real stuff in Berlin in the B- Berlin Museum. Um, it is it is an amazing archaeological feat. But this was a pretty impressive city. Daniel, who we're going to meet next week, he lived in the palace. He was deported in 605. I'll go into that. He was deported in 605, but he lived in the palace. Ezekiel lived on the Kiber River in one of these irrigation canals in a refugee camp. The Babylonians take a lot of captives. Some of them, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're kind of in the, in the palace, and they're, they're working within the palace as advisors. But Ezekiel's not part of that group. He's out, in, he's out in, the, in the city, and he's out there with all of the other refugees. So who's the audience? Who's he writing to? The original audience of Ezekiel were the Jews living in exile under, in Babylon under Babylonian dominance. Initially, they were resistant to his message of judgment and denied it would happen. They basically said, oh, we're going to be here a couple years. (laughs) Um, When they heard about the judgment that fell on Jerusalem, especially the temple that happened in 586, they needed to be reminded that the Lord was just. You deserved what you got. He was faithful and that they should have hope because the Lord had not abandoned them and had a future for them. So half of his message is this. Judgment's coming. When it comes, he says, you deserved it, but God's not finished. And that's his, mes- his message of hope. Where's all this taking place? Once again, let me just tell you. In 722, the Assyrians are the dominant power. They come down to the northern kingdom of Israel, and they wipe them out. They scatter them, take them away. Then the Babylonians come into power, and when the Babylonians come into power, they go down into Jerusalem, and in three different waves, they take people away. In 605, they take Daniel away. In 597, they take Ezekiel away, and Ezekiel's there in 597. A few years later, God says, I need you to start telling these people that they're going to be judged, and there's a reason for it. We're going to see all of that. That judgment comes in 586. When the judgment comes, Ezekiel's message shifts to a message of consolation and hope because God is not finished with the Israelites because he will finish 
his promised plan for his own glory. So that's what's going on in this book. When was this written? Ezekiel received his prophetic call, because we know all these dates, in July of 593 B.C., approximately four years after his deportation uh, with King Jehoiakim of Judah in 597. His prophetic ministry continued till at least 571. He began this ministry when he's 30 years old. We'll read that in just a minute. He's 30 years old when he starts. So therefore, he was born in 623. Ezekiel grew up in Judah during the reforms of King Josiah. He's deported to Babylon, but while he's back in in, uh, Jerusalem until he's about 27 years old, he's hearing um, the preaching of some other guys, I'll show you in just a minute. But he's there for the reforms of Josiah, probably the best king of all of the kings. But following Josiah, you get the three worst kings ever. So he's there for a great revival and then just constant decline. He's there for that. Ezekiel likely knew both Jeremiah and Daniel. Ezekiel was younger than Jeremiah, who was born in 643 B.C., 20 years before Ezekiel. Jeremiah started his ministry in 627 when Ezekiel would have been a young boy. So he hears Jeremiah's preaching as a young boy. Jeremiah would have preached through the entire time Ezekiel lived in Jerusalem. Ezekiel was a few years older than Daniel, who was born in 620 and was taken to Babylon in 605, about eight years before Ezekiel arrived. So these guys overlap. Um, I put all this in a chart, believe it or not. Uh, If you want the chart, I'll print it out for you. But what I want you to see is the overlap of these guys. Jeremiah is preaching for this long time in Jerusalem, preaching judgment. Daniel is away in in Babylon. He's taken captive in Babylon, and he's preaching about God's control of the future. We'll see that next week. Ezekiel kind of sits in between because he's saying, the judgment's coming like Jeremiah said. It comes like Jeremiah said. And then he's going to say, but there's still a future like Daniel is saying. My guess is these guys knew each other. For sure we know that Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, he's reading Jeremiah. He's got a copy of Jeremiah's messages. We know that that happened. So, why was Ezekiel written? Ezekiel was written to show the justice of the Lord in bringing judgment on Jerusalem, to present the justice of the Lord against the Gentile nations who were harsh in their treatment of Judah, and to provide comfort by giving the nation a vision of the Lord's glorious presence and prophetic future for the nation that would eventually be fulfilled in Jesus the Savior. All these visions of of exalted people on the throne, they're visions of Jesus. Um, And he's saying, the judgment came, you deserved it, but God has a future, and he's going to use you to bring the Savior into the world. So, how does all this happen? What's, how, is, how is this, and what is it? In, in a few minutes, I'm going to start reading some passages to you, okay? How does all this develop? Um, like so many of the prophets, he's going to say this. Judgment is coming, and you deserve it because you're, of your idolatry, your ritualism, and your injustices. Then he's going to say, but God is going to judge those who judge you. This is Habakkuk's big problem. How can God use these Gentile nations to judge us? And he's going to say, God's going to judge you. Somebody's going to tell him that Jerusalem has been sacked. And at that point, his message is going to change to look to the future and to say, God is not finished with you. He's got a great plan because you still, like he always said, are going to be the channel through whom all the world is going to be blessed. And that's going to come through Jesus Christ. How this develops, in addition to this outline, is fascinating. Tom Constable says this. The book of Ezekiel begins with a vision of God's glory. That's chapter 1. I'm going to show it to you. It records the departure of God's glory. That's chapter 8 through 11. I'm going to show it to you. And it ends with another vision of God's glory returning. 
So they have God's glory. It leaves, then God's glory returns. The last one is the longest vision in Scripture outside the book of Revelation. Glory's there. It departs. Once it departs, destruction comes on Jerusalem because God's glory is not there to protect them anymore. But God's not finished because his glory is going to come back. I'm going to make a point that I've made at Christmas time before. The glory is, comes in Jesus Christ. So here's, here's how this works. At the beginning, in chapter 1, we get this vision of God's glory. This is on the chart out there. In chapters 8 through 11, the glory leaves. And then there's a vision of the restored glory at the end of the book. Okay, so those, that's how I'm going to hang this, what we're going to look at today. But there really is that standard thing of judgment on Jerusalem and Judah for all of their wrongdoing. Judgment on the Gentile nations that's going to come. And then there's going to be this restoration. These last two, they're going to get their comeuppance and God's not finished with you. That's the comfort that happens at the end of the book. Okay, um, A focused part of that is God regathering the nation rebuilding them, creating worship centers, a worship center for them in this temple, real or ideal, I don't know. But God's presence is going to rejoin them because God is not finished with them. But it all changes in the middle of the book. Bruce Waltke says this, on January, 6th, January 19th, 586 BC, we know because he says exactly when it is, we can calculate it, Ezekiel's prophecy undergoes a profound transformation. On that day, according to Ezekiel 33, 21, a fugitive who escaped from Jerusalem informs him the city has fallen. With the announcement that his, with this announcement, his oracles of reproach and judgment have been fulfilled. Ezekiel is filled with glorious visions of Israel's salvation. He's been telling them through visions, creative, wild portrayals of messages. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Once they say it came, now his visions are going to turn to Israel's salvation. He likens the return, their salvation, like a return to Eden. For him, Israel's restoration is assured because I am, that's Waltke's way of saying Yahweh, because I am's name must be upheld among the nations. Again, it's about God's glory, not ours. A failure to restore Israel would bring dishonor upon himself. The reassembled nation will be purified in heart and spirit and united in one flock under I am as their shepherd. Okay, let's trace this out. Okay, we're going to start. Um, with the overall message and then some details. Here's my summary at the bottom of my chart that's out at the Connection Center. Ezekiel, who grew up in a priestly family in Jerusalem and then was taken into captivity by the Babylonians in 597 B.C., recorded messages of judgment on Jerusalem and the nation of Judah because the people had not kept the covenant but fell into idolatry, resulting in the departure of the glory of the Lord from the temple, and also delivered messages of judgment on the nations and prophesied of a coming glorious new kingdom with the return of the glory of the Lord in order to show the exiles and the returnees, the glorious, powerful, and holy God is faithful to his covenant, which should give them hope. (laughs) When the world's going to hell in a handbasket, our hope is not that we're ever going to get it together. Our hope is this. The Lord himself will finish his promised plan. He's going to set everything right. He's going to fully save us. He's going to do everything that he has promised. So this starts with this message of God's presence with them. They've, they've been taken into exile, and Ezekiel is in exile, and the message is kind of this, but God is still with you. He gets this message of God's presence. In my 30th year, in the fourth month of the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kiber River, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, 
The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. Now, I'm going to read this vision, and I want you to just keep your imagination rolling, okay? Just keep it going. Stay with me. Just let your imagination roll. If you need to close your eyes, close your eyes. I want you to imagine as I'm moving along here, okay? I looked, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and the fire, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. Got it? Okay. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its, with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz, and all four looked, like, looked alike. Each appeared to be like, made like a wheel, intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. Right here is where everybody stops reading Ezekiel. We're going to keep reading. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like something like a vault, a platform. Sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out one toward another, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Four creatures, four faces, their wings are out. They probably touch, they're, they're forming a square, and there's a vault on the top, um, and um, it's loud when they move, with these wheels intersecting with eyeballs on them. Then there came a voice from above the vault, above their heads, as they stood with their lowered wings. Above the vault, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, that's really blue, dark blue, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man, I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him. Got it? We ready to move on? Wild vision, okay? By the way, let me just point out, the person on the, on the chariot, this, this battle chariot, the person on it, it's Jesus Christ. We're going to see him later. This vision of him in light is going to be the Mount of Transfiguration. It's going to be see what we see in the book of Revelation. This is a vision of Jesus Christ exalted. If your imagination hasn't put all this together, uh, let me give you a couple pictures. Um, this is William Blake, Blake uh, from the 18th century, his portrayal of it. Um, I don't know if you can see it very clearly. I, I, I would have some critiques. I'm not sure there's four faces there. You only get one cherubim. There's four. Their wings are touching. It's a big vault. I don't know, but that's, that's okay. He's an artist. Who am I? To, I didn't draw anything, so there's a picture. Um, here's the Bible Projects version of it. I think kind of interestingly, um, they do have the four cherubim with their wings touching the vault on top and the wheels on the bottom. But did you notice the wheels are intersecting and they're all moving together? The wheels look like this. They're moving, but they're not moving, and they all have eyeballs on them. That's creepy. When I read it, I thought about this. I thought, this looks like BB-8, okay? <laughs> Just, that's kind of what it looks like to me, okay? It is a message of, of judgment coming from the north, a battle chariot. God is coming to judge um, Judah, <laughs> and he's coming um, leading the glory of the Lord is leading the Babylonian army to come down and judge Judah. That's not how this chapter ends. Here's the last verse. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds, 
on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Judgment, but there's a rainbow. I love what Al Ross says. The message of Ezekiel is that judgment is coming like a storm. The one bringing the judgment is the glorious Lord enthroned on his battle chariot. The last word of the vision is the rainbow of grace. The final word for God is never judgment. The final word is always salvation and grace. The rainbow, by the way, is ours. And it's a message of God's grace and his mercy to say, I won't judge the world forever. He's going to judge them. Remember, there's some grace in there. What's going on in Israel is unbelievable idolatry. This is Ezekiel chapter 8. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came on me there. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. This is Jesus. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. And from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of the head. And again said, boy, come with me. The spirit um, lifted me up between earth and heaven. And in visions uh, of God, he took me to Jerusalem. He's in Babylon. He goes to Jerusalem in these visions. To the entrance of the north gate of the inner court of the temple. Where the idol that provoked to jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel. As in the visions I had seen in the plain. His other vision, that glory is with him. And when he goes to the temple grounds, the first thing he sees is an Asherah pole. A fertility idol that is... um, Pagan and vulgar. <laughs> and it's in, it's in the middle of the temple grounds. And that's the first thing he sees. And it provokes God to jealousy. God is just saying, this has, has burned me up. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing there. So I went in and I looked and I saw portrayed over all the walls, all kinds of crawling things and unclean animals and all the, and all the idols of Israel, the idols from the surrounding nations. In front of them stood 70 elders of Israel and Josiah, son of Saphon, and standing among them, uh, each had a censer in his hand and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. They are standing in front of all these idols worshiping. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrines of his own idol? They say the Lord doesn't see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Again, he said, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and I saw women sitting in there mourning the god Tammuz. He said to me, do you see this son of man? You will see things that are more detestable than this. The women are mourning Tammuz, who's a fertility goddess, um, who we know this is in the the, um, fall, and winter is about to come. and, And what happens is this fertility goddess has died, and they're mourning that she's she's dying because winter is coming. They're totally wrapped up in all the pagan worldview. Then he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And there at the entrance of the temple, between the portico and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And they were bowing down to the sun in the east. They're worshiping the sun god. I looked and I saw the likeness of a throne of lapis lazuli above the vault. And that was above their heads of the cherubim. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. The glory brings them there, says, look what they're doing. They're worshiping other gods in the temple designed for me. And while he's there, the glory of the Lord rises up from the Holy of Holies and moves out to the threshold of the temple. 
God's glory is leaving. I just looked at Dawn and I remembered when we dedicated this building, um, one of the things we did that was the best thing we've maybe ever done here as a church is we set up a microphone right there and we read the entire Bible into this building. How many of you participated in that? You came in here, we're 24 hours a day. We were reading God's word. We need to do it again, maybe. When, when this passage was being read, um, God's, God's glory departing from his building, when this passage was being read, it was overwhelming. Um, may that never happen for us. May we keep our eyes on Jesus and be faithful to him so that his glory does not depart. But here, God's glory rises up from the inner sanctuary and it moves to the threshold of the temple. Then the cloud of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. I'm so sorry. And as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the Lord was above them. It moves from the Holy of Holies to the threshold, and then it goes outside to the gate. Then the cherubim, with the wheels beside them, spread their wings, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. (laughs) It goes out to the Mount of Olives, from the Holy of Holies, to the entrance, to the gateway, now outside the city. And now that God's presence is gone, all hell will break loose and judgment will come on that city and that temple because God's presence is no longer protecting it. This is what happens. The departure of the presence. But that's not the end of the story. A few verses later, therefore say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. He's going to bring them back. Now, this has happened a few times. It it, it literally happened in 586. It happened in um, 1948. I don't know which one is the fulfillment. If, If they're scattered again and brought back, that's God's business. I can't figure it all out. But God will bring them back. And he will take vengeance on those who have judged him, judged the nation. And that's what happens in this message of judgment on the Gentile nations in chapters 25 to 32. All these nations that have been cruel to Israel are going to be judged. Um, And it's going to expand on Tyre because they were very powerful. They kind of escaped the Babylonian dominance, and so did Egypt. They escaped the Babylonian dominance. So it's almost like, well, God's already judged all those other nations because Babylon wiped them out too. But Tyre and, and Egypt, they're going to get their comeuppance. Al Ross says this, Since the beginning, there has been an effort by Satan to destroy Israel. It's not that Satan just wants to destroy Israel. It is the fact that he knows that there are prophecies about Israel, and if he can destroy Israel, prophecy is unfulfilled, and therefore the word of God is defeated. Why is Israel important? Because God said he's going to do some things for Israel. And if Israel can be wiped off, then God can't fulfill those promises, and then his name is at risk. And Satan wants to do that, and he will be doing it to the very end. That's not the final message. (laughs) The final message 
is restoration through a new covenant. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel all talk about this new covenant. Through a new covenant, Yahweh will restore his people to new life under new leadership in a new kingdom in which his glory will again dwell forever. Ezekiel's messages turn to salvation, new leadership, restoration uh, to the promised homeland, restoration spiritually, final deliverance from chaos, and restoration of worship in the blessing of God's presence. That's where this ends. God restores them, and his presence comes back to dwell within them so he can fulfill all of his promises. And at the end of the book, you get these prophecies that bring them back together um, to establish a kingdom with one shepherd ruling them. One of the weird things he does is he gets two sticks and he binds them together because it's basically saying um, Israel and Judah have been separated. God's going to put them back together. And when God puts them back together, they're going to have one shepherd. And that shepherd's going to be Jesus, not these false shepherds who have let them go astray. And then he's going to say, and worship is going to be reestablished because there's going to be God's glory in the regathering of the people together. The worship is going to start and God's going to... um, bring his plan to a conclusion. Now, this new temple and the return, I've got a a pattern of it there. Again, I don't know if that's real or ideal. Honestly, I don't know. Um, It's not going to be built today. It's going to be in the the millennial kingdom. So don't obsess about anybody trying to build it now. They're not going to build it now. Everything's got to change for this six mile by eight mile place to be built upon which a temple is going to be there that's way bigger than any of the other temples um, that were ever built. Um, there's a campaign at the end where the Lord um, brings them back to the land and he defeats all of his enemies. Um, defeating Gog of Magog, I think, is the symbol of he, he's defeating all of their enemies. Um, it's, it's not a specific thing that we can figure out. Why does he do this? This verse is really, really important, folks. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I have proved holy before their eyes. I'm not doing this for you. You don't deserve it. You know what you deserve? The judgment you got. But I'm going to be faithful and I will complete and finish, bring to a culmination my promised plan because my name is at stake. I said I was going to do all of this. John Hilber says one way to summarize the whole message of Ezekiel in one sentence is this. Yahweh, the God of glory, exalted on that throne, must judge his rebellious people. Yet he will restore a, right, a repentant remnant to covenant blessing in the land where they will enjoy his glorious presence forever. This word forever is what makes me believe there really is a future for Israel. Now, maybe not their current state because <laughs> they're atheistic and they're not following the Lord. But there will be a future for Israel. So what do we do with all this? Woo! <laughs> I'm tired. I'm sweating. Where do we go? Where does all this fit? Ezekiel reminds us of the consequences of sin, the comprehensive nature of God's justice, and the certainty of his plan to bless the world through Jesus the Messiah. He's going to keep Israel alive so they can be the conduit through whom Messiah will come. But he's still got some plans for them because Jesus will be the ruler of that nation in the future. Ezekiel reminds us of the importance of God's presence. God's presence with them protected them. It was their center of worship. And when we ignore his presence, his presence will leave. Ezekiel sets our hopes on the glory of God, which will be fully revealed in the future. 
Folks, this, this world is not the end. <laughs> Danny Hayes says some really good things. Read them on the, online. What should we believe? First and foremost, the Lord himself will finish his promised plan. The Lord will never leave us or forsake us. Although we may forsake him, he's not going to leave us or forsake us. The Lord is committed to discipline, cleanse, and ultimately bless his people. We all like that blessed thing. We all like, oh yeah, he wants our best life now. You know what? Your best life now, right now, might mean discipline and cleansing. Calling for repentance before the blessings come. The Lord is sovereign with complete control over human history. That's Daniel's message again next week. Which he is moving toward his ultimate goal. Therefore, there's always hope. God is in control. There's always hope. So how should we behave? Maintain fellowship with the Lord through faithful obedience and focused worship. Keep following him. Keep worshiping him. Really. Um, if they do it like first service, there's going to be a time in the, uh, in the follow-up today. By the way, wow, I am way over time. Sorry, Ron, back there. Um, where, where they're going to back away from the mics and, and we get a chance to hear us sing. I want to hear us sing. Let's really make it real worship. Maintain hope in the Lord by taking your eyes off yourself, keeping them focused on Jesus, who is our ultimate hope. Be amazed by the glory of God. T.S. Eliot said this. I'm going to read it. But it seems that something has happened that has never happened before. Though we know not just when or why or how or where, men have left God, not for gods, they say, but for no gods. And this has never happened before, that men both deny gods and worship gods, professing first reason, then money, then power, then life, race, dialect. You'll find a God somewhere, but you're saying, I don't believe in God. I'm not worshiping gods, but you have your own gods. The church disowned, the tower overthrown, the bells upturned. What have we to do but stand with empty hands and palms upturned in an age which advances progressively backwards? That's us, folks. So what are some next steps? Take the long-range view of life. Be patient in the midst of discipline while waiting for the realization of hope. Recognize that God is disciplining his children. It's always been his plan. If you're being disciplined, be patient, but don't give up hope. Meditate on the reality that God wants to present you, wants to be present with you more than you want to be present with him. He wants to be present with you. He wanted that so much so that he gave you the Holy Spirit to be with you all the time. Are you taking advantage of it? And talk about with somebody the fact that the best is yet to come in our relationship with the Lord. Father, thank you for this wild, glorious, clear, convicting message in your word. And Father, I pray that we would be amazed by your glory. That we would recognize truly, truly how great you are. That would penetrate our hearts. It would capture us. And Father, I pray that we would be good representatives of you in the world. For your glory, not ours. For your purpose, not our blessing. And I ask that in Christ's name. Amen.